our focus moves to chapter 7, Revelation 7. And I want you to look at the very first two words in Revelation 7.1. It says, after this. After this. One of the great dangers in the book of Revelation is you try to make sense of this book. Is that every time John says something like that, after this, you assume he's giving you the next notch in a timeline. This happens, then this happens, then this happens, and this happens. John is not laying out one long continuous timeline. John is describing the visions that he saw. And he's saying, I saw this. After that, I saw this. And chapter 7 has a unique relationship to chapter 6. Notice this uh, quote from Thomas and Schreiner. Thomas says chapter 7 runs parallel with the 6th. John's not laying out chronology. He's going back and he's describing something you need to understand as you make sense of chapter 6. That's what he's doing in chapter 7. Schreiner says the same thing. Chapter 7 functions as an interlude and answers the question posed in chapter 6. Those sealed by God will be spared from the wrath. So let's read the first few verses here. Revelation 7, 1 to 8. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard, pay attention to verse 4, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And we'll stop right there at verse Eight, okay? Notice this, if your Bible's open. Revelation 6, 17. Who can stand? Who can stand? Notice the very first line in chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels doing what? Standing. They are standing. Who can stand? Well, that's your first answer to the question. These angels can stand. When the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb show up in wrath, they are able to stand. John speaks of four angels, four corners, four winds to describe the thoroughness of God's judgment on those who dwell on the earth. So numbers are important in Revelation, and one of the important numbers is four. It's a number of completeness. I know that you always hear seven is a number of completeness, but four is a number, number of completeness. When the Bible talks about the four corners of the earth, you understand we're not flat earthers. It's saying all of it. When it talks about the four winds of heaven, it's not saying it's going to come from the east. It's saying the wind, all the wind, all the power. So the thoroughness of God's judgment is what's in focus here. And when you think wind, Brian and I were just talking about the wind blowing this afternoon. Don't think about that kind of wind. Okay? Think like 
tornado. Think like hurricane. Think like the wind that blew all night when the Israelites needed to cross the Red Sea. A wind blew all night to push the sea back. And then when it was time, the wind changed and that sea came down in judgment on Pharaoh and his army. That's the idea of this wind. Not a breeze, but a powerful force of destruction. So, thoroughness is is the, the aspect of judgment in view. These angels are holding back judgment until another angel is able to seal the servants of God. That's in verse 3. You and I don't do a lot of sealing. We do a lot of signing. You have to sign documents. If you've ever bought a home, you have to sign like 8 million documents. I promise I'm going to pay. I promise I'm going to pay. I promise I'm going to pay. I sign. I give my signature. Your kids get a report card. They bring it home. Got to sign the thing. Yes, I saw it. I promise I saw it. I'm aware my kid's failing geometry or whatever it is. That's how we authenticate something. That's how we prove that something is genuine or real. In the ancient world, it was often sealing. And a king, especially an oriental king, would have a signet ring, and he would press it down into the wax, and it would have his logo, and it would authenticate or verify that something belonged to him or that something was genuine. That's the idea showing up. When we read about this angel who will seal the servants of God. Very quickly, the story of the Passover involves something similar. When the blood is smeared on the doorpost to mark these are God's people. The apocalyptic vision in Ezekiel 8 and 9, very similar. Again, the book of Revelation does not have a lot that's completely brand new. Go back and read Ezekiel 8 and 9 and you'll think, John just ripped it off. It's the same story. Ezekiel goes and he seals these people. Thirdly, the work of the Holy Spirit is another parallel. And as I was looking at my notes today, I just want to say to you, that's an understatement. The work of the Holy Spirit is a parallel. I think what John's actually talking about is the work of the Holy Spirit in sealing God's people. I think that's what's in view. So I'm going to run through this super fast. You ready? Why are these servants sealed? It is not protection from suffering or physical harm. That's not the point of being sealed, that you won't suffer anything physically. It is not protection from spiritual warfare or demons. That's not the major emphasis of this sealing. This sealing, they are sealed. These servants are sealed for salvation. The question is, who can stand in the presence of the wrath of the Lamb? And the answer is those who are sealed. Those who have their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. They've received this seal from God. Now the next question is, who are they? I don't think that they are the last generation of believers alive when Jesus returns. I don't think that's what it's talking about. I do not think that this is an unconverted Jewish remnant who will be converted at the end. We could argue about that from other passages, but I don't think you can argue about it from this passage. They are, these 144,000, they are the people of God in every generation who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, and they're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, in this next section, I want to explain to you why I think that this 
144,000 sealed represent believers in every generation and not just some Jewish thing. Because that's a common view. This is just a Jewish thing. It's an end times thing. It's a little group at the end. I don't think that's what's in view at all. Here's my reasoning. John heard the number sealed. 144,000. He heard it. That's what the text says. Verse 4. I heard. I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000. It doesn't say that he saw it. It says that he heard it. It doesn't take a math major when you're looking at Revelation to figure out 144,000. That sounds important. 12 times 12 times 1,000. I think clearly this number is saying 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, Old Covenant, New Covenant, times 1,000. This is the people of God. And John heard this number. Why do I think it's symbolic? The list of tribes reminds us that this is a symbolic number rather than a literal number. There are a number of places in the Bible where you find the 12 tribes of Israel listed out. None of those lists match this list. None of them. It's the only place they're listed like this. Judah is not the firstborn. He's the fourthborn. But he's listed first here. Completely missing from this list Dan and Ephraim. And one of the really interesting features is that Joseph is in this list and one of his sons, Manasseh, is in it, but his other son, Ephraim, is not in it. This is a highly unusual list. It's not like anything you'll find in Genesis or Exodus or anywhere in the Old Testament. Why would John... Listen, you can't move two inches in this book without bumping it into the Old Testament. John knows the Old Testament. He knows it backwards and forwards. He's ripping off Zechariah. He's ripping off Isaiah. He's pulling from all sorts of stuff. Why would he mess the list up? It's because he's saying to you, I'm not talking about a literal group of Jewish people in this number. I'm going to give you a symbolic number, and I'm going to give you a symbolic list. Secondly, the 144,000 sealed reappear in chapter 14. So this 144,000, they show up in Revelation 14, and it's obvious there that we're talking about a symbolic group because it says of these 144,000, they are virgins. If you read apocalyptic literature, virginity has nothing to do with have you had sex or not. It has everything to do with are you faithful to the one true God. So it's using symbolic language even in chapter 14 when it talks about these 144,000. As a symbolic number, 144,000 tells us the number of those sealed will be complete. That's a complete number. 12, 12 times 1,000. There's a fullness to that. And here's my kicker. I told you, when I'm not certain in Revelation, I'll tell you, and I've been honest with you. I'm certain about this. The 144,000 of Revelation 7, 1 to 8, is the same group of people described as a great multitude in Revelation 7, 9 to 17, which we're about to read. It's the same group of people described from two perspectives. Revelation does that all over the place. It gives us a look at something from one perspective, and then it steps over to the side and says, let me say the same thing a different way 
to help you understand it. And that's what John's doing here. So here's a quote from Hamilton. We might not be exactly sure why John includes the tribes he does on this list, but we can be sure of this. The 12 sets of 12,000 points to a full and complete number sealed. This very round, very perfect number is symbolic. And the point of the symbolic number is to say, listen, I've told you, symbolism in Revelation. You don't take it literally, but you take it seriously. You don't get to just be inventive, but we're not going to be stubbornly, woodenly literal. What does it mean? It's very round, very perfect. And the point is that God saves a vast multitude, a huge, complete number of people, and by sealing them, He ensures their perseverance. Now, I've given you four other quotes. Lad says they're the same people. The 144,000 in the great multitude we're about to read about. G.K. Beale, it's one group seen from different perspectives. Look what Bauckham says. This is the kicker. Chapter 7, 4 to 14, uses the same device we saw in 5, 5 to 6, contrasting what John hears and what he sees. And I'll let you read the rest of it. Let me just explain to you what Bauckham is saying. In chapter 5, there's this question. Remember the question? Who can break the seals? Who can take the scroll and open the seals? And it's just sort of left hanging there for a while. And then John hears that someone can do it. He hears that there's a king. You know he hears about a king because what he hears about is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He hears about that. And then he turns and he sees, not a lion, not a root, but what? A lamb. And it's obvious in that vision that what he heard about and what he saw was the same thing being described from different perspectives. You see the parallel, the literary parallel? It's a beautiful way of writing. There's a question, a lot of uncertainty. Who can open the scroll? Well, he heard the answer, and then he saw the answer. It's the same thing playing out in chapter 7. The question is, who can stand? The wrath of the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne is great, and people would rather be covered up by rocks. Who can stand in their presence? And he hears the answer. He hears 144,000, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12s from every tribe, 12,000. And then when you come to this next section, he doesn't hear something, but he sees it. So let's read the rest of this chapter. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude. I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, not just the 12 tribes, from every nation, all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and all the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. 
That's a very polite way of saying, I have no idea. I need you to tell me. Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. The Lamb will be the shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All right, let's walk through this. You notice in verse 9, it starts with after this. It's not chronology. It's John seeing something from a different perspective. It's not laying out a timeline. It's John circling back to talk about something from a new perspective. So after hearing the number of those sealed, John saw a great multitude. He looked and beheld it. No one could number from every nation, tribe, people, and language. The parallel to Revelation 5 is obvious. This uncountable multitude is the final fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. You remember the sorts of things that God promised Abraham? Nations will be blessed because of you. You will have more offspring than the dust of the earth. You'll have more offspring than the stars of the heavens. Here John sees this vision and it is an uncountable multitude. It's the fulfillment of that promise. John sees the uncountable multitude, and what are they doing? Standing. You see the parallel back to the end of chapter 6? The Lamb shows up. The one who sits on the throne shows up. Who can stand? Because their wrath is great. Well, the angels can stand. We saw that. And this multitude is standing before the throne and before the Lamb. References to palm branches, it's a callback to the Feast of Tabernacles and the Triumphal Entry. I'll just mention the Triumphal Entry for the sake of time. You remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem in the Triumphal Entry and they waved the palm branches, and what is the word that they cry out in the Triumphal Entry? Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Literally what they're saying is, save us, save us, save us. It's a prayer. The word Hosanna in Hebrew is a prayer. They're praying that Jesus would save them. Here is the fulfillment. This multitude standing before Jesus around the throne and they're waving the palm branches and they're saying what? Salvation belongs to our God and the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. What we prayed for has come to fruition. It's a fulfillment of tabernacles and the triumphal entry. Now, one word of caution. Be careful about the phrase, great tribulation in verse 14. I agree with Schreiner when he says the term great tribulation is not a technical term with a single meaning. This is the kind of thing that a lot of people pull out of Revelation and they build a whole idea around a great tribulation. Okay, I'm not saying, listen carefully to me, I'm not saying there won't be an intense period of tribulation at the end of human history. I'm not saying that. I think that actually will happen. But be very careful about someone who takes this great tribulation 
and pulls it out and says, look, this verse right here is about the last seven years of human history. My question to those people is, where do you see that in the text? Because what I see is seven sevens in Revelation. And each of these sevens deal with the period of history between the ascension and the return of Jesus. And as you're laying this out, and you fit chapter 7 into chapter 6, Jesus came back at the end of chapter 6. The Lamb is there, and He's filled with wrath, and people are terrified. And the heavens are being shaken, and the stars are falling, and this massive earthquake, this theophany, this appearance of God, that's the second coming. We read about it in chapter 6. So what it seems to be saying is they've come out of this period that was tribulation. Remember the four horsemen riding and all of the destruction that they were given to carry out? That's what John's talking about here. You just got to read it in context and make sense of it there. Old Testament background, Daniel 9 and 12. New Testament background is Matthew 24. Uh, lots we could say there. You want to have questions about it, we can talk about that afterwards. One last thing. We'll just put a bow on chapter 7. There's a song in Revelation 7, 15 to 17. All sorts of symbolism, all sorts of Old Testament allusions, all sorts of prophecies fulfilled. You just can't move a verse in this last song, verse 15, 16, and 17, without callbacks to the Old Testament. Just over and over and over and over again. John, as he's seeing this vision, think about what's happening. He sees the vision. And then it's to him using his brain and inspired by the Holy Spirit to put it into words. And the way that he does that is he pulls from the Old Testament over and over and over and over again. Kind of makes sense from a human perspective and a Holy Spirit perspective. John's seeing things that he has no category for, so all he can do is go back and use Scripture to make sense of it. And Scripture is being fulfilled. And the same Spirit that inspired the Old Testament is allowing John to see this vision and allowing John to put these things down into words. So lots of fulfillment there at the end of chapter 7. Now, let's end with conclusion. I'm going to give you seven thoughts. Seven's a good number to end on tonight. Seven points of application or reflection. And then we'll pray and get out of here. Number one. Until Jesus returns, we can expect war, conflict, famine, death, suffering, and persecution. Revelation has assured us, chapter 4 and 5, that Jesus is ruling with the one who sits on the throne. He's sovereign over everything. Revelation is also assuring us that the world is going to be a messed up place until he comes back. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to fix things when it's in our power to fix them. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't live as good citizens as we find ourselves in exile in a place that's not our ultimate home. But it means that our expectations need to be matched with what the Bible's promising us. And that is war, conflict, famine, death, suffering, and persecution. Um, it also means... And I say this gently, that when you read about war, conflict, famine, death, suffering, and persecution, don't jump to conclusions that it means Jesus is coming back tomorrow. If you study human history for 2,000 years, that's a lot of it, 
right there. It's been going on for a long time. And we are not the first, by a long shot, not the first generation of people to say, surely Jesus is about to come back. Surely it can't get much worse than this. And we are easily alarmed people. When we watch the news and we see a tsunami here and an earthquake there and a terrible thing here and a disaster here, we think, surely, this is it. Like, this is, it's coming, right? It's coming. Well, it's been 2,000 years and people have been thinking that. So that's just what we can expect until Jesus comes back. Secondly, the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb are absolutely sovereign over the evil and suffering we experience, even if they're not the immediate cause of that evil and suffering. And I just put up on the screen the Greek phrase here that we've referenced a couple of times. It's the Greek words, edothe autoi. Edothe is the, the passive version of the Greek verb to give. It was given. It's the passive tense. It's what you're not supposed to use if you want to write clear English. Don't write in the passive tense. But that's what's used, the passive tense. And autoi means to him. It was given to him. It was given to him to have this crown. When you get later in chapter 13, you'll read about the beast from the sea. It was given to him to be blasphemous and to claim divinity for himself that was not his to claim. God allowed that to happen. God was sovereign over all of it. It didn't happen in a vacuum apart from his sovereignty. And that beast who claims those blasphemous names is responsible for it. And this writer who goes out to conquer and to conquer. It was given to him to do that, but he's responsible for it. And God will bring a reckoning. So there's a quote here from Peterson and a quote here from Hamilton. This is nothing you haven't seen in the Bible already. This is the book of Job, right? Opening chapters of Job. Satan's there. He's asking God for permission. God gives him a little bit of leash. God's sovereign over all of it. He sets the limits. He sets the boundaries. He closes it all in. And Satan goes out and does terrible things. And he's responsible for it. And there'll be a reckoning for it. But God's sovereign over all of it. That's what this phrase means. It shows up all the way through the book of Revelation. Number three. As the people of God, we should not expect to understand why God does what he does when he does it. And it's okay to ask the question, how long, with reference to judgment. It's okay to ask that question. I know that Jesus prayed for his enemies on the cross. And I know that Stephen prayed for his persecutors before he died. So you've got to factor that into your prayer life. But these glorified saints in heaven who ask, how long until you put an end to all this mess... They're not rebuked for that prayer. The book of Psalms is filled with that kind of praying. How long until you make this right? Listen, you can pray that prayer as long as you're okay with the answer that they got. What was the answer? Wait. Wait. Not be quiet. Not change your attitude. Not, that's not very kind of you. Just wait. That's the answer. I like, uh, really like this quote from Guthrie. Do I ever express in my prayers a longing for God to come in judgment? Or are my prayers mostly about me and my little world? 
Do I ever pray for God to vindicate those who have been killed for their allegiance to Christ? Do I pray regularly for those facing intense persecution around the world, asking God to give them the grace to patiently endure? I think those are good questions. Number four, we must be willing to live for Jesus and we must be willing to die for Jesus. And I think it has to happen in that order. In that order. I'm amazed at the interest people have in the book of Revelation. I remember meeting with a couple the week that I left Kentucky. Talked to you about Kentucky earlier. The week that I left Kentucky, something happened in the news. And this man and his wife came to church. They hadn't been to church in decades and I went to their home and met with them and I said, hey, love to having you at church. You guys looking for a new church? They said, yeah, we haven't gone to church forever. We loved coming. It was great. I said, oh, okay. Have you been going? No, we haven't been going for a long, long time. And I said, well, why did you come? They said, well, we watched the news and we're convinced that Jesus is about to come back. So we think it's time that we, you know, and I said, yeah, I know. And we talked about, is Jesus coming back? Is it going to be in a week? Is it going to be in a month? That was a dozen years ago. I never saw them at church again. Good job, Pastor. You talked them out of coming to church. You convinced them that Jesus wasn't coming back the next day and they never came back. They thought in all their hysteria about the mark of the beast and the return of Jesus and the Antichrist and this and that and all their theories, they thought that in the end they would have the courage to die for Jesus if that's what it came to. They didn't have the courage to live for Jesus one day. Revelation promises blessing to those who read this book, to those who hear this book, and to those who keep this book. That may involve willingness to die for the Word of God and your witness. Or it might involve going to church, serving at church, visiting widows and orphans, giving tithes and offerings, filling in in your Sunday school class, sharing the gospel with the person that you work with. It's a call to live for Jesus and maybe a call to die. Number five, Romans 8 is gloriously and eternally true. Nothing can separate the believer from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I won't spend a lot of time here. I'll just point out to you that these uh, souls who are praying in chapter 6, they have been killed for the word of God and their witness. Where do they find themselves after they're killed? They find themselves with God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. They are separated from their body for a time, waiting the resurrection, and in the meantime, they are with the Lord and talking to the Lord. And not even death could separate them from God. That's the promise of Romans 8, and you just see it on display here. Number six, I like this quote from Peterson. I didn't think I could say it better myself, so I just put it in here. Christians sing. They sing in the desert, they sing in the night, they sing in prison, they sing in the storm, how they sing. 
they sing. We talked about this a month ago. I'm not going to beat you over the head with it again. I beat you over the head with it a month ago. Christians sing. They sing. Christians sing. Number seven. As the people of God, we've been commanded to take the gospel to every nation, tribe, language, and people. We engage in the mission with hope because of the vision of Revelation 5 and 7. So I referenced Matthew 28 there. If all we had was Matthew 28 and we didn't have the book of Revelation, we would know enough that we need to go out and tell people about Jesus. We need to send people to the ends of the earth. We need to make disciples of all the nations. That's clear in Matthew 28. Jesus says to do it. That's all you and I need to know to be obedient. Jesus said, go make disciples. That's our calling. Make disciples. It's a beautiful thing that we have these visions in Revelation 5 and 7. Because the vision in Revelation 5 promises us that the Lamb who was slain ransomed people from every nation, every tribe, every language, everyone, all over the earth. He's ransomed people. They belong to Him because He bought them, He purchased them. And Revelation 7 tells us that in the end, there will be a great multitude a vast multitude. Where do they come from? Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. They'll all be there represented. Not every single human being, every soul, every person will be there, but representation from all of the nations, all of the tribes, all of the languages, all of the peoples will be there. So when we go out, when we give to a world missions offering, when we send people to Kenya, we go out with the utmost confidence. God has people here. The Lamb ransomed people. Some people. We have no idea who will come to faith. That's not our job. Our job is to go, to preach the gospel, to make disciples, and to go out with confidence that Jesus has people. Wherever we go, whoever we talk to, whatever cultural, linguistic boundary we cross, He has people, and in the end, they'll be with us shoulder to shoulder, around the throne, singing and praising the Lamb.